Welcome to Rocking Our Prize. Today I'm joined by Suresh Naidu, Associate Professor in Economics at Columbia. We're discussing not one, but three fantastic papers of his on monopsonies in the USA and the UAE and the relationship between democracy and growth. Suresh, welcome. Thanks. <laughs> okay, now, so let's start off with this democracy and growth paper. So many people look at China with incredibly rapid economic growth and infer that authoritarians get the job done. Now, in New Political Economy, you, together with Asimoglu, Restrepo, and Robinson, explore the relationship between democracy and growth. How do you do this? So we kind of revisit a literature that is uh, pretty old-fashioned and not uh, particularly uh, popular these days of the cross-country regression. Yes! <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, we, I think we pay a lot of attention to kind of trying to do the best causal mm, inference mm, job mm. you can do with this kind of observational data. And what we sort of realized, it was in the process of writing another paper on inequality, was that we sort of realized, and this had been noted before, that um, what really happens before you see a transition from a country that was non-democratic to, to democracy is that um, kind of GDP falls off a cliff in the years prior to a transition. And that's just obviously because it's a crisis that causes the transition. Mm -hmm. But it turns out if you don't sort of take care of the dynamics of that crisis, you're going to get the effects of democracy on anything else just all wrong. Because what's happening is everything goes to pot, and then some countries transition into democracies and other countries don't. And then that's where you see the divergence is in the differential recoveries of these two places um, after they've undergone this kind of economic crisis. Mm -hmm. And so this is why the kind of careful comparison is in some sense matching two countries that both go through this kind of similar downturn, mm -hmm. but one democratizes and one doesn't, and then kind of looking afterwards at how their uh, GDP evolves, adjusting for any effects of this just kind of dynamics of the crisis itself. Mm. And so that's kind of the, the, the idea in the paper. And it turns out this makes like, once you handle this, a lot of the kind of confusion in the literature just kind of goes away um, in, the, in the sense that, um, uh, you kind of get a pretty reliable, you know, positive effect of democracy on 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 GDP of about one percent per year, um, or one percent in the year after a, a, a democratic transition. Um, and uh, we do we do a few other things just to kind of like uh, cross the T's and and dot the I's. But that's kind of the main main insight of the paper. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, and I think what what helps is that that means that. You don't get the right comparison by thinking about countries that have just always been non-democratic and countries that have always been democratic. So the, the USA and China don't do very much work in our regressions at all because they don't experience any transitions. So what we're really sort of interested in is kind of the countries that, uh, and so what they're helping to do in the, in the paper is help us figure out kind of the control group of like what, what do dynamics of GDP around a crisis just look like generally without a transition. And then what we're really interested in is like countries like South Korea or Argentina um, that kind of undergo this, an economic crisis, experience a political transition, and do they recover at kind of a higher level than countries that don't. Um, so that's the that's the empirical exercise, and I think it just um, and once you do that, handle those dynamics. Like I said, you can basically see you get this very reliable positive effect of, of democracy on, on economic development. It operates through a whole bunch of channels, like increased public goods, lower social conflict, increased private investment, 
Um, and, uh, uh, and so I think, you know, once you get the comparison right, you can kind of get this, this effect of democracy on growth. But it might not be the effect that people want, which is, of course, a limitation of any causal estimate, is that the variation that lets you get the causal effect might not be the variation that is like the thing that you really care about, which is China versus the US. But the world doesn't give us that experiment. We don't get it. So this is what you can do with the kind of variation that you get. OK, so that was a good pitch, Suresh. But yep. I, I have questions, yep. right? Yep. So I want to start off with. This idea, I want us to take a step back. It, why should I be, why would anyone be interested in the average effect of democracy on growth? Because isn't the real underlying question for everyday political discussions, is our country better off as a democracy or not? So should we allow, so we being situated in Cambodia, for instance, be allow our country to embrace this authoritarian drift? So lots of my colleagues in Cambodia, they're very impressed by what's happening in China, and they say, oh, maybe we should allow Hun Sen to become more authoritarian because then we'll be allow... Uh, then we'll generate growth. So those are the actual discussions. Those are the real trade-offs that people are engaging with. And my question to you is, what's the best way to answer their concerns? These are people who've got real concerns about how to make their country grow. Why does it help them in Cambodia to know what happens on average? So there's two questions underneath your question. One is just, you know, you have, say, decision makers trying to make the call about whether or not they should flip to mm -hmm. democracy. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the sort of takeaways, at least my takeaway from from kind of the, the, the paper is that it's not like you get to choose. <laughs> and, uh, and that part of the thing is that what's happening is that the political conflicts that give rise to transition to democracy, they're not like kind of a given out for free and they're not they're not um, in some ways just like a choice of a ruler right. to democratize. No one, no one in a dictatorship votes for democracy. No, yeah <laughs> and so what you have is these crises they lead to this huge kind of like levels of political conflict no, and I'm then totally transition. No I'm totally with you but, but still um, in Cambodia today you'll have people looking up to China thinking wow China is great maybe the lesson from China's rapid economic growth mm -hmm. is authoritarianism. So there is a certain sense in which people might be impressed by China and give Hun Sen a free reign so to speak and so be less so the, the mass is being less critical than they might not right. be. Right. Uh, well, I think one thing to tell them is that you're not seeing the counterfactual of like how much faster could have China grown if it weren't. Yes, yeah, so that's a, my question. A, 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 so, is the but best the world question, doesn't give us that. It, but, doesn't, oh, that doesn't it? So, that's what I'm interested um, in. So, is the best way to answer, is there any, why is it best to answer the Cambodians' concerns by looking at average effects in the world rather than say, trying to work out what, what could be different in China or trying to work out how important democracy and growth are in Cambodia or China. Why not focus on a small N number of case studies in order to answer their questions? Well, because then you have to be really careful that you have kind of the, the if you're going to do the case study mm. method, you need to be really careful that you've got your cases carefully mm. matched mm. in some sense mm. on like kind of observables. Mm. And so the advantage of kind of uh, 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 kind of a statistical approach mm. is that you can at least say up to like statistical precision. Okay, these guys they look similar, um, uh, uh, you know, on average beforehand, and then we can look at a divergence afterwards. And I think there's like a there's a real merit to kind of saying, well, let's pool over all of the kinds. If you really think there is there is. Uh, democracy is obviously a mm. different thing mm. in every mm. different place, yes. but if you believe that it's a thing that yes. there is a coherent concept of democracy that somehow is portable across mm. concepts and you think that it has an effect, then we think that this is kind of the best way to approach it. Now, you could believe that democracy is not a thing. You could, for example, you might think that it's, it's, 
there is too much variation in the thing that is democracy to yeah. be useful. That's a question I want to come up to later. But okay, but here's my question is, fine, I can grant you that your, your method is the most rigorous way of exploring the relationship between democracy and growth. But is it the most useful answer to my colleagues in Cambodia? That's my question. So I think there's a difference between the most rigorous thing and the most useful thing. Yeah. And I wonder if those things are coming apart. But I think one of the interesting lessons of political economy mm -hmm. is that it's not clear that it's possible to be useful to a decision maker. Because well, you're think, describing the aggregate equilibrium yeah, sure, of a society. Sure. There's no sense in which one person can take this knowledge about how the whole society is behaving and say, I want to do no, that. No, I bet I meant the masses, like, you know, people just generally. Even people, then, yeah, yeah. They, like, I mean, they, 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 they might think, oh, well, hey, you know, they might look at our paper and think, they're, actually, if we, if we had the opportunity to transition to democracy, then we could um, uh, grow. And that might, you know, that might be true, and our evidence probably provides some evidence in that direction. But what, really, what we're really getting is this kind of, yes, if you have a crisis and you manage to democratize, then you're likely to see this, like, and the, you're going to see this effect on growth, and we think that's because you democratized. Um, outside of that context, I'm not sure we have that experiment. Um, so I want to, I want to sort of. You know, the, the paper is pitched as like democracy does cause growth mm. because I think we, we, it's like a question that lots of people have, have, have asked and it's yes. a big question to, to, to take a stab at. But what really lets us answer this question is like kind of conditioning on the crisis. Um, okay, so, so, what we, so what you're saying is that it's not really possible to do the rigorous work in country but because we need this cross-country cross effect. And even if it, and even, it, okay, so here's my next question. So we, you were talking earlier about how the earlier generations of cross-country studies were often sort of rubbish, dismissed as not being sufficiently mm -hmm. rigorous. And now we've got this incredibly rigorous, incredibly careful work. What do you think is the value in cross-country work? Why, why is that so important? And you know, why, why is it good to revitalize that? In well, sense, I'm, right? not, I'm not sure. But I think there are some questions, mm -hmm. like democracy, that the partial answer isn't the right answer. Like, there's a sense in which democracy is a transformation of the relationship of state and society, mm -hmm. and that's not something that's picked up in like a village level regression or an individual level regression. Mm -hmm. You need really the whole macro kind of system to change, and that's not variation you get in any RCT. That's not variation you get in uh, uh, in any in in most within country. Uh, variation, like you can get pieces of it. Like yes. I've worked on things like restricting the franchise in the U.S. and uh, uh, and people have worked on that in other within country contexts, and that's useful and interesting variation. But it's not clear that that is the effect of like transforming your whole system into like a democratic system. Okay, so the best way to understand this relationship is the cross-country regression. So I'm going to grant that, I'm going to grant that, and I'm going to be very diplomatic and nice. Yeah. So now let's get on to the nitty-gritty details of what you do. Now here my question is that granting the usefulness of regressions, what aspects of democracy are you tracking? Because my concern, and you picked this up earlier, is that democracy looks different in every different kinds mm -hmm. of place, whether it's, you know, in participatory democracy in Brazil, it's sort of grass, you know, village elections, all sorts, of, or the Swiss referenda. There are all these sorts of different things. Can we really cluster it into, as, as you do, into a dichotomous variable, say either democratic or not? So I was also wondering, why do you use a di dichotomous variable? Why not use a spectrum? 
So I think we get, so one paper that has happened since since our papers there's mm. been a there was kind of a machine learning paper that kind of took all of these democracy indices mm. and kind of used like machine learning to pick out kind of the common components across all of these mm. democracy indices and when you do that you actually get results that are pretty similar to ours. So I, I don't know that it's anything about the dichotomous variable. It's just the problem that all of the existing, so we kind of did our own kind of human learned, human learning <laughs> uh, uh, version of the, of, of, a, of a measure of, of, uh, of democracy by kind of pooling across all of these indices that yes. exist out there and sort of saying that we're going to subject democracy to kind of a tough test and say that you have to be dem democratic on like kind of two of the existing scores like freedom, house, and polity and say that that's going to be kind of uh, uh, our, our robust uh, definition of democracy because we don't want to futz around with like, well, are you really democratic or are you not? We just want to say like you're democratic if, if like two of these indices say Can that you're... Can you tell us more about what those indices say? So polity, uh, I don't know how much you want to get into the weeds, so polity tends to have like uh, components that are like constraint on the executive, uh, participation in elections, um, I should know the third, yes. but I don't remember, and then Freedom House, which is another one that we use, has like mm -hmm. civil liberties as one. Um, so, but, uh, but, but I'm still, why not, I'm, I'm still not quite clear, why not use a spectrum? Why not? Why well, not you always have, have to like, make some decisions about aggregating these. Like, democracy is a necessarily multi-dimensional thing yes, about yes. your institutions. But why not use a scale of say one to five or so, something? So, I mean, you can, like I said, in this machine mm -hmm. learning thing, they basically have a much more continuous mm -hmm. measure, and it seems to be, and it seems to deliver the same result. Right. What we are mostly interested in doing is kind of well. There's two reasons. One, mm -hmm. one is that actually to use a lot of the like causal inference machinery, right. like a propensity score, you mm -hmm. need a continuous, you need a binary variable. Mm -hmm. So, like to do like a, a, a a, a propensity score weighted kind of version of our of our estimates. Those tools are really set up for a binary treatment. So it wouldn't. It just wouldn't be possible. Well, well you couldn't use some of the tools that we that, okay. that we that we used if you if you didn't have a have a have a binary binary variable. And there's like a lot of ways in which the causal inference machinery has kind of been most highly developed for like a binary treatment variable. <laughs> and so by coding democracy as a binary treatment variable, you kind of get to like. Pull a draw on the machinery that's been developed for that. So that's, I think, one mm -hmm. defense of, of of using democracy. But really, our, we were just kind of going off of this one paper, this the one paper that had gone back and historically by Papuana and Syrianis that had gone back and looked at like done the zero one measure and they had looked at sort of around dates of transitions mm. and tried to c come up with their own zero one measure and what they were really interested in was getting like the exact year right and so yes. we wanted to use their data as our starting point mm. but then like extend it yeah. and so that's why we took their zero one measure and kind of went mm. and extended it and so that's that's the that's the, probably the real reason is that there was this other paper that had used the zero one measure and we had sort of okay. uh, inherited from that. Okay, so your answer is that the binary model enables us to do causal inference and it's probably quite accurate as suggested by the machine learning. I'm with you. Okay, yeah. next question. So I had this suspicion that there could be something else causing both democratization and growth. You know, maybe the rise of the middle class or organized labor push for political representation and those reflect ongoing economic growth. Um, another possibility, um, which I'd be really grateful if you talk me through, is that maybe the international community labels a country a pariah and only resumes economic relationships, trade, investment, aid, if that country adopts economic reforms. How, how do you eliminate that possibility that there's something else causing both? Um, so, there's two things in that question, though, because you're you're asking one thing: is there like something else, like rise of the middle class, that's mm. kind of driving both democracy and growth, or is there like kind of a something else that happens that you know you're under? There's a latent variable, which is kind of the the international pressure 
that is kind of a mechanism by which a transition to democracy could generate growth, yes. which is trade. Yes, yes. I am totally okay with that being one of the mechanisms. We do see trade increase. We like a good example is actually like kind of Portugal and Spain democratizing in the 70s, and then later getting access to the European uh, 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 community. And so that's that's you know that's part of the mechanism. Well, okay. So this is, mm, so here here I have a question because the title of the paper is. Does democracy cause no? Well, democracy does, does cause, cause growth. Yeah. But if we accept that other international actors are important in rewarding democracy, isn't that effect contingent upon those other in, those other foreign countries' priorities at the time? So it may have been in the period that you look at over the seventies, eighteen, nineties to date that then the US as the global hegemon rewarded countries that were democratizing. And so my, uh, my question to you is, is the paper t better titled Democracy Did Cause Growth? Because during that period, we had a sort of, you know, global hegemon that wanted countries to be well, more... Well, actually, where you get the lowest effects mm -hmm. when you look at the heterogeneity mm -hmm. is the Soviet transitions. We know they didn't have great economic performance on yeah, the whole yeah, yeah. in the decade mm -hmm. after democratization. Yeah, for sure, yeah, yeah. Uh, um, uh, And so, so it's actually like those are, you know, when you plot like the event-by-event event effect of democracy. It's by and large but wasn't positive. wasn't that just a, an effect of terrible, terrible economic, you know, the far But if you want to say yeah, this yeah, international yeah. thing is like the thing that's going on, I will give you but, but this But this is the counter, problem of the Kenya averages, isn't it? Well, but, I, you know, in some cases, you may have that the U.S. is reward, economically rewarding. Yes. You know, for example, Indonesia, after the East Asian crisis, uh, it goes undergoes an economic crisis, and the IMF says to it, listen, if you want to resume trade relationships, then you've got to allow independent trade, uh, trade unions. So there you've got an economic incentive to make these democracy reforms, and once you've made more democracy reforms, then you get the economic growth. So that's one case, and then you've also got your Eastern European stuff. So that, and that, I think that goes back to our question of averages. Well, but, but then you have to believe that that stuff is like con correlated with the transit, you know, because remember we have like country and year fixed effects mm. in all these regressions. So we're basically absorbing anything that's constant over time is mm. absorbed, mm. and anything that's constant to a country is absorbed. Mm. So it has to be that if that's the thing that's causing it, then that's like changing changing in around the years of a democratization and driving this growth effect. And so I think that's, that's it's kind of hard to, for me to imagine that there's like a US specific um, uh, change in the incentives given to a particular government that, um, that are like, okay, now you've changed your incentive. You're, and you happen to have a crisis and you're switching to democracy at the same time mm. and then you're experiencing economic growth because the US like made this made, made these offers. I'd also like to point out that one of our specifications yeah. one I re really mm -hmm. like is that we absorb like kind of region cross year cross like initial regime type so you can think of like all the countries that are Latin America that are in Latin America that are democracies in 1960 we are looking just within that set and then look at countries that like you know compare like crisis switch versus crisis not switch within that set of countries and that specification also kind of still works and so that's kind of reassuring that because then you'd have to believe that this external thing was somehow differentially applying you know within the 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 uh within the um these like initial regime cross year mm -hmm. cross region cells um so yeah i mean you can 
I think you know there, there's do I I think you're, I feel like you're asking me two separate kinds of questions. One is is the effect uh, context free, and I'm going to say no because there's no effect in social science that's context free, sure, yeah. not even bed nets uh, or like worms, uh, and uh, uh, and so as, even as close as medicine and you know as close to medicine as you want to make development, you're never going to get like a no, context free. Sure, yeah. uh, uh, um, uh, effect. So you're fine with me rewording your paper title? Democracy did cause growth. Um, sure. Okay. Um, I'll write into the journal and tell. Yeah, them. yeah. <laughs> uh, because it's like I think that's the true with almost. But then that's like saying we should label every causal effect that we've ever found as something that happened in the past, because it was all happened in the but past. Is, but is that a nuts idea? Um, I'm okay. I mean, I'm okay. I'm, uh, you know, I'm sort of on the... I, All right, that's a minor point. We'll move on. We'll I would just on. like to point out, I've said yeah. this on, on Twitter, it's like every field and every subfield mm. thinks that it has the exact right trade-off between abstraction and context. Oh, sure, sure. And so, like, the macroeconomists are like, well, you know, we have this, we have the right level of abstraction. And then, like, the development economists are, no, 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 you guys are too abstract. We're, like, working at the right level of abstraction, which is this micro level. And then the anthropologists come along and are like, your data points are actually all individual people that are all separate people. What are, you, what are you doing putting them in a regression and comparing them? And they think they've got the right trade-off between abstraction and context. Um, and then the historians are like, the anthropologists, you know, are like coming at this with all this like uh, structural, post-structural theory. We should just tell the stories. And, you know, so anyway, it's all right. turtles all the way down. Okay, so now, so now let's go back. Okay, so let's move aside that. So we grant the, the points about what context. Now what about there's some the idea that there could be something else causing both and one thing and correct me if I misunderstood did I because I, I couldn't see it in the paper do you look at the possible idea that income inequality could be causing both uh, or, or growing income equality could be causing both growth and um, democratization. Yeah, so that was like a separate paper. That was actually the first paper we started writing in the space, which was like a handbook chapter on like the relationship between democracy, redistribution, and inequality. Uh, that's sort of like the paper that where we noticed this dip and then mm -hmm. wrote this paper as a result of it. So that paper was like basically all about the effect of, of democracy on, on inequality, controlling for like looking around transitions to democracy mm -hmm. and seeing if there's like a, a a pattern in inequality leading to it. So inequality, by the way, just moves incredibly slowly yes, relative to yes, GDP. Yes. So it's really hard. So we run that regression in five-year windows mm. just to even like have a hope of yeah. seeing changes in inequality. Um, and, uh, uh, and so what we actually found in that paper is that there's really not much of an effect of democracy on inequality, despite like the endless. Uh, uh, oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, there, there was just like nothing. Um, either in the lead up or in the or in the afterward or in the aftermath of a transition, and um, uh, but what what is interesting is that you do see an increase in public goods, as I mentioned. You do see an increase in tax to GDP ratio after a democratic transition, and here's I think the most interesting thing is you do see um, changes in the income distribution, but they're kind of like closer to what uh, is sort of George Stigler, plus his heart, called uh, director's law which is the idea that democracy doesn't redistribute from the top to the bottom, it redistributes from the ends to the middle. And, uh, uh, and so the idea is that when you had a dictatorship that was like, let's say a pro-poor dictatorship, mm -hmm. and it democratized, mm -hmm. then you see like uh, inequality uh, go up, but when you go from like a pro-rich dictatorship to democratize, then inequality falls. And so that's this kind of idea that, you know, when you go from, from you know, that it's, Democracy empowers kind of like the median voter, and if the median voter wants to take things from the poor, then they'll take things from the poor. If they want to take things from the rich, they'll take things from the rich. And so you don't necessarily get 
uh, kind of like net effect of democracy on inequality. It kind of depends, you know, who uh, what the dictatorship was doing before. But 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 but, but so as I recall that paper, that 2015 paper, I thought that was looking at how democracy affects income inequality. Yeah. So my question was slightly different. I, I well well we look at pretrends, right? So we oh, don't okay. see any movements in inequality like leading up to a democratic transition. All oh, right. Okay. So, okay. Uh, excellent. Uh, excellent. Uh, okay. Right. So. Then what I also want to talk about, which I really like about the paper, is that you look at regional waves of democratization. Yep. Can you tell us why that is important? Because I think that's a very clever thing to do. Well, it's actually been, it was, it's kind of, uh, we didn't invent it. Take the credit <laughs> for it. Uh, um, uh, so, and it's kind of a, uh, 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 an, uh, an old idea in some ways. It's just this, like, oh, you can kind of construct an instrument by taking the component of democratization that's kind of common to a region uh, so what we actually use is these like region cross initial regime cells. So like all of the Latin American countries that were democracies mm. in 1960, we let those countries all, uh, we kind of take the common component of democracy in that cell mm. and use that as an instrument for democracy. Mm. So we're kind of like saying, forget about what's happening in your country. Let's think of the part of, of the probability of you democratizing that's driven by the fact that like all of your neighbors with similar political institutions mm. are democratizing at the same mm. time. And so if we use that, do we get sort of similar uh, uh, similar effects? And you do. Um, you can you can criticize that instrument in all kinds of uh, in all kinds of ways, but I think we do a pretty good job in in, in making it uh, uh, in making it work and controlling for the things that would that would might, that that might confound it. Um, so would I say that that instrument like solves the causal problem? No, I actually think rarely instruments solve causal problems. Uh, 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 but but uh, it's kind of like one of the three legs that the paper kind of stands on. There's like just the simple adjusting for the dynamics gives you the gives you a fairly robust OLS result. Then there's this propensity score weighting, and then there's this instrumental variable strategy, and they all give you not just things in the same direction, but actually pretty similar magnitudes. And so we're like, oh, when all three of those pieces kind of hang together, that's kind of pretty convincing. Okay, right. So how big is the effect of democracy on growth? Can you give me an example, it's, like what difference it might make to the average country? Yeah, it's like one percent. So, so I think 20% after 25 years uh, is what you're going to get. So uh, you democratize, wait 25 years, you're going to get something like a 20% effect. Uh, and what do you think is driving? So you look at the mechanisms, the average on average. Yeah, I mean, it's all kinds of things. It's private mm. investment. It's uh, it's you know uh, infant it's uh, infant mortality. It's increased education. It's increased size of government. Uh, it's uh, it's lower social conflict. It's lower civil unrest. Um, so we see, we basically looked at all of these and we can't really disentangle them. And the design isn't set up to disentangle okay. them. Like we just can kind of point in this, this direction, but we haven't, I wouldn't say we have nailed the mechanism. Right, okay. Because, and I think that's partly perhaps because of this whole idea of averages, right? That, you know, there are many different ways that various aspects of economic reform, uh, uh, democratizing yep. reforms could affect economic growth. Possibly and more than you have countries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, um, There'll be a, and there, you know, the impact of a specific democratizing reform will affect economic growth in a different way for different reasons because of the context issues that you mentioned. Yep. So I don't. So I cannot envision that any cross-country regression could really answer that question in a useful way. Yep. Not trying to trash your paper, but I'm just no, saying no, no. that. That's I'm also like, would like to point out that it's very hard for a qualitative comparative politics study to also make this case. So so uh, I'm just like we're all trying. It's yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that's, no, no. Um, But I, I just think that would be a hard thing to do, right? Okay. 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 How um, I want to also say so in your con um, okay. So I think 
my question is now reflecting on this podcast is I can understand from what you said that this is the most rigorous way to understand the relationship between democratization and growth. It's not the most rigorous. All right, so this, like, okay, so this but, is a very rigorous way to understand the relationship yeah, on average. Is it rigor? I don't know. I don't like that term because it oh, feels really? like it. Tell me. I hate uh, it's just like rigor is the defense of people that don't believe their methods actually give them the right answer. It's like this is just rigorous. It's like not that you actually think that you're like learning something about the world. It's like a defense invoked by the standards of your profession, not a defense coming out of like you actually really believe the substance. And why, so why is that necessarily? Because you're saying that it's rigorous because my disciplinary community Are really you thinks Are saying that? Well, I, like I think when you invoke rigor as a defense of why you're doing what you're doing, it's because you're like seeking the blessings of your disciplinary community. Um, but as opposed to actually believing that this is like giving you- What time you, would you prefer? Um, you know, credible or like uh, okay. believable okay. or, uh, you know, like I feel like the estimates I would like to think live because, like I believe them because we did it in a way that I could feel like I could convince a third party okay. that they were believable, not that they were like invoking the rigor cookbook okay. or anything. I will you not. Know, I will not use. I will not use that terrible, terrible word. Um, and yeah, it's gone. It's gone. Okay. Great. All right. A, so I find that this. It's like when it's like when 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 like some like really when really technical industrial economists uh, industrial organization mm-hmm. economists say that they do. Uh, oh, we're being rigorous, and it's like, but are you getting it right is the question. It's not whether or not you're being rigorous. It's, uh, yeah, anyway. Suresh, I'm with yeah, you. Okay, I, will okay. never, I will never again okay. mention that word. Fine, fine, fine. So this is, allow me to rephrase, a very credible, persuasive, convincing, plausible study on the relationship between <laughs> democracy and growth yep. on average. Yep. Now, to return to my initial question, for whom is that effect useful too or, or maybe it doesn't need to be useful maybe it's just established it's no good to know averages i just want to return to that original question so there's two i mean we by the way i just want to flag we do look at some heterogeneity with just to, just to check whether or not Demo- the effect of democracy is different depending on whether or not you're a poor country or a low educated country and we do get there's no difference by whether or not you're rich or poor but we do get this it's a, a slightly smaller if you're a less uh, educated country on average so that's the heterogeneity we looked at um, so the what's the what's the takeaway mm. so I do like to think that the like one of the Beautiful things about political economy is that it doesn't lend itself easy to to advice to policymakers. No, it's, sure, sure. Uh, it's like, yeah, sorry, you don't get to pick whether or not you're a democracy. It's uh, 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 it's something the whole society like does. Um, uh, and uh, um, but I don't think we need to. I, well, you, so every time I mention the term useful, you keep on going back to policy. Well, it's because you talk and about think, you, yeah. and I think that things can be useful to everyday. Citizens. Okay, then let's talk about that. So then I think one of the useful things about it is just kind of um, saying that you are not going to pay. You don't. Uh, you're not going to obviously pay a huge economic price for being a democracy, and so I think that, like, it, particularly in the light of China, on average, uh, uh, you know, on average, or at least you shouldn't necessarily think that it's obvious that if you switch to democracy, you would necessarily, you know, be condemned to like uh, 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 underdevelopment. Okay, so here's my follow-up question: yep. Is that a credible answer for? So that's a credible answer for what happens on average, but is that a credible answer? for my friends in Cambodia. How much weight should they put in that average effect for what, what's important in their country, I guess? I don't know what that means because you're asking me, it's like they want to make a decision. Mm. It's, a, it's like 
you, when you say it's useful, it kind of depends on the decision that they're trying to decide mm -hmm, on. Mm -hmm. So if the decision is, do I attend this pro-democracy rally today? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do I think, yes, oh, yes, democracy exactly. does cause growth. Oh, yeah. great, cool, I'm going to go to the demo. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, would I be thrilled if that was the actual calculation anybody would make? It was like, yes. Do I think that's the calculation anybody makes? No. Uh, it's like, oh, but they used a propensity score. I'm definitely going to the rally. It's uh, uh, um, okay. Uh, okay. So I get the sense that you're saying that it's good to know this relationship on average and that in reality, maybe I'm being a bit too idealistic or naive and thinking that anyone looks at no, but, paper I, but, but I do think among the elite, demos. among like you know the the discourse, if you will, mm -hmm. that like people kind of saying that, particularly in India, and you mm -hmm. see this a lot, that like oh India would be so much better if it was non-democratic, yeah, and, this, and right? people say this a lot, and uh, and they just look at China and then they see this yeah, yeah, huge. huge growth rate and they think oh but that's because it's uh, it's not a democracy, it gets things but done you're quickly, not getting, yeah. but then I'm like you don't see the counterfactual. Mm -hmm. And so this paper is useful for saying when you try to do the comparison where you get the counterfactual right, you don't see this like big positive effect of non-democracy. And that's, so I think it's like a little bit putting a pinprick in the belief that non-democracy does cause growth. Um, Suresh, I'm with you. Okay. I'm placated. Okay. Now I want to turn to monopsony. Okay. Right, you but, Oh, right, yeah. but I wanted to bridge it. Oh, okay, right, we, so you didn't start with my motivation. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Okay, yeah, so, you, you make uh, the bridge. Uh, the bridge, the bridge, so for our readers or listeners at home, uh, the bridge that when I pitched this to Alice was the, that these, the, the papers on democracy and the papers on monopsony were kind of two sides of the same coin about studying power, mm. public power in the case of democracy and private power in the case of monopsony in economics and that we can have kind of a really, uh, that, that a lot of other disciplines sort of criticize economics for not sort of taking power seriously and I just wanted to point out that, that we can take power very seriously and not just at the level of the state and politics and the way that we can think of democracy as an equal sharing of power and look at its effects on, 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 on economic development but then we can also go and look inside sort of the hidden abode of production, if you will, and, uh, uh, and think about like the, the power that um, employers have in the labor market. And that's the sort of connection between uh, democracy and monopsony. Thank you, Suresh. <laughs> and I apologize. Yeah, nice. I apologize. <laughs> um, for the, okay. So, we'll just edit that back in. Sure, sure. I'm kidding. Suresh, my <laughs> ego is fine with <laughs> getting <laughs> it wrong. Okay. So, the U.S. economy is so. Let's think about monopsony. Um, so the U.S. economy has grown, but average wages have remained stagnant, um, only increasing by three percent since the 1970s and falling for the bottom fifth. So there's a big debate about why this might be. Some people blame uh, foreign competition from low-paid workers overseas, globalization. Other people blame immigration. Other people blame labor replacing automation. But you're interested in something else, Suresh, about monopsony. I th so okay, let me clarify. Is that a bad start? Well, no, no, it's not. It's, not it's, it's a, it's a good, it's a good, it's a good foil. Um, so, a, I just wanted to clarify. Like, actually, in this most recent boom, we have started seeing wages at the bottom increase. Mm -hmm. Some of that's due to minimum wages, mm -hmm. uh, for sure. But I, maybe, yeah. uh, but, but uh, it's 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 interesting that that we're at least in the last couple of reports, we are seeing some wage growth. Um, so, what I'm actually, I wanted. To, it's important to clarify this yes. is that. I don't actually think there's an there's no evidence that we've seen like a increase in monopsony. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, and I just wanted to like put that on the record that I don't think that like you know stagnant wages are caused by an increase in monopsony. Oh right. Uh, um, what I do think is that generically the labor market is monopsonistic, mm -hmm. and so 
what we're now able to see is that without countervailing institutions like unions, like minimum mm -hmm. wages, we can kind of see this monopsony operate more clearly. And uh, so you don't think monopsony explains the stagnant wages? I don't think this change in monopsony does not generate right, change okay, in, okay. In, 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 in wages. So but could it explain the stagnation, the fact that they've been well, there, I, they, I think it's, it's, it's a little bit tricky because it's not that you see like you, you, I think it's why one of the reasons why, for example, wages don't track productivity. Mm -hmm. yes, but it's yeah, one of sure, many, sure, yeah. you know, okay. uh, it's. Uh, there are or, no monocles of explanations. But I think it's what, once you have this view on the labor market, mm -hmm. um, and it's a very simple thought experiment. Just yeah. imagine that your employer, like, shows up one day and says, I'm cutting your wages by 10%. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, what are your odds of quitting? Mm. And. Uh, and just, you know, how easy would it be for you to walk and get mm. another job? Mm. And for most people, it's not that easy. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and I even think at the high end of the labor market, you know, it's not that easy. Mm. If, like, what, you know, as, even, as, even in the super competitive labor, academic la uh, labor market for economists, it's still pretty hard. You're, you know, mm. you're still pretty mm. uh, uh, reasonably stuck. Um, uh, and uh, the... And what that's useful for is that's like a great like thought experiment for measuring how much uh, market power employers have. So if employers can cut your wages by a bit and you you won't mm -hmm. leave, mm -hmm. do you really think they won't use that and like not uh, kind of just be willing to to lowball the wage, recognize they're going to lose some people, mm -hmm. but recognize that enough people are mm -hmm. going to stay mm -hmm. that it's going to be kind of worth it for them to accept the higher turnover mm -hmm. and uh, make a margin off of every worker that stays. And so, and then once you sort of see that, you sort of see what the trade-off that employers are facing is kind of a high turnover, uh, uh, they can take a high turnover, low wage strategy, mm -hmm. or they can take a low turnover, high wage strategy. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, what Monopsony says is that it's not super costly to take the, the high turnover, low wage strategy because, you know, workers aren't super mobile, so you can reduce wages a lot before you suffer really... High yeah, really high attrition. And what's nice about this is that you can measure it, and you can measure it in all kinds of places and all kinds of ways where you kind of look for places. Wait, 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 wait. Before we get to the attrition question of yep. measurement, which I know is what interests you, yep. can you just give me a nice definition of monopsony for our listeners who might not be so familiar with it? So yes. that's sort of an example of, of how the mechanism works, but can you give me a definition of what it is? Uh, it's when employers uh, have wage-setting power. Okay. And uh, what that means technically is that the labor supply elasticity facing the firm is not perfectly elastic. Mm -hmm. And so that means that when it's not perfect, if it was perfectly elastic, then any firm that cut its wages would lose all of its workers instantaneously. Uh, and that's kind of what the textbook model of the labor market kind of implies, is you, the, you cut your wages, you yeah, lose Yeah, so everyone. that's the standard assumption in much economics, right? Yes, and, uh, and, but then you just sort of look around and you realize that that's like ridiculous. And I think everyone knew that it was ridiculous, but I don't think it had been appreciated that the departures of reality from the ridiculous assumption are actually really important. But can you just tell me why is it the standard economic assumption that monopsies don't really exist? Why, why have so many economists assumed that for so long? So I think there's two reasons. One is that um, the, the, we have this really well-developed uh, grammar of competitive markets, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and competition lets us make problems a lot simpler. We understand things mm -hmm. when, uh, when the markets are perfect, and then mm -hmm. there's like kind of no reason to think that what makes the labor market so different from every other market, hey, maybe we can just analyze it with the same tools we mm -hmm. use to an mm -hmm. analyze every other market. Um, and, uh, and, it, and I think another reason that... Um, 
So it's just an assumption of homogeneity across markets. Yeah, I think it's almost like, like oh, you, you, yeah, that's right. I think it's that, like, you know, we have this idea that markets kind of generically work like this. They have supply and demand. The, 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 there's like a single, there's a single price that equates supply and demand, and you know, everyone's a price taker. So that would assume, that would that it helps explain sort of faith in the model. But wasn't the the fact that the model might be wrong coming up in people's studies? Like, oh, why I mean, it's old, it's an old. I mean, Joan Robinson coined, yeah. co uh, coins the term in 1933, and she is, by the way. Uh, my my 20th century intellectual hero is uh, is uh, heroine is is Joan Robinson on just all kinds of questions, but particularly on this one, mm. um, is is uh, the that you know she just like points out that there's that employers probably have wage setting power and. Uh, she, she's enough of a Marxist to basically point out that this is like a decent substitute for the labor theory of value. Um, it's just this idea that, that, that employers set wages and, uh, uh, and can exploit workers mm -hmm. uh, uh, via, via their power in the market. Um, and, but, but what's important is that it's also, it's, it's a monopsonistic competition in the sense that where it's like, what you have is that there's still many employers and there's not like a lot of concentration necessarily, but it's that employer. Even, Can I just translate yeah. that for my non-economists? Yeah. So what you're saying is, it's not necessarily that there's only one employer, employer which is town. what people have sort of yeah. thought about. Lots of people, yeah, that's yeah. what people thought that it meant. And can you explain why it's slightly different from that? Yeah. So the idea is that it's like you have many different employers. You're right. But it's still the case that um, either because of lack of information mm -hmm. or because of like idiosyncratic preferences. Oh, all your friends are at this one, mm -hmm. or it's like closer. It's an easy commute, or works for your childcare. Um, then it's hard for you to switch among the employers, okay. and so you can have many employers. And but and why that's important is that each each employer is just facing a decision of like, when I set the wage, how many of these folks will quit? But I don't have to worry about like these strategic interactions across you know that one other my one other competitor. I'm with you. But can I just get back to my first point? Yeah. So why haven't other economists seen that monopsonies exist? So, so uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, oh, but, oh sorry. So, and so that no, idea no, gets sorry, adopted by like a whole school of American mm. institutionalist mm. labor economists. Yes. One of my the paper when I first encountered it, just I was like I agree with every single word of this. this is like my view of the labor market it's by Martin Bronfenbrenner in 1955, and mm -hmm. it's called Potential Monopsony. Mm. Um, uh, potential Potential Monopsony in Labor Markets, mm. where he basically has a view where like employers set wages like monopsony, and mm. he, he and this institutional school of labor economics. It was has a Princeton at Harvard. It's mm. it's a school that was just like looking at the world and like studying how firms work. They like ran surveys of firms, asked them. One of the best uh, incarnations of this debate, if you ever, uh, if for reader for listeners at home, is this uh, exchange between Richard Lester and Fritz Matchlup and George Stigler in 1946 over the minimum wage, where Lester, one of these institutionalist mm. guys, is like, I surveyed these firms, guys. Nobody says they're going to lay off workers in response to an increase in the minimum wage. And Stigler and Matchlup are like, no, that just can't be true. Uh, economic theory says so. <laughs> and, you know, and it's just kind of just reminds you, like, this just never ends, this debate where, like, labor economists kind of look out and it's just like, the world, you know, market forces in the labor market are just not dispositive of what's going on. And then other economists being like, no, nah, come on, you guys. <laughs> like, it's like gravity not working. Um, and uh, uh, so I think... So I think there was an early tradition where monops in labor economics mm -hmm. where monopsony was just kind of part of how people understood the labor market. Yeah. But then it got replaced by kind of a more Chicago school yes. that was um, uh, that basically said the labor market's just like every other market. We shouldn't analyze it using, using any, any different tools. And then that kind of stuck around for a long time. And then I think it's, again, only with like the 
the credibility revolution in economics in the 80s where like again we went back and started having tools to measure things yes. and take these theories b uh, back to data that you could then start see seeing the reemergence of this uh, institutionalist imp imperfect competition view of the labor market I'll also say one of the you know so the first impetus for it is like the minimum wage results yeah, that kind of sure. this is like a tool for understanding these like uh, uh, these uh, counterintuitive effects of the minimum wage but I think what's actually really given it a boost is the rise of matched work firm data sets yes where you can start seeing the same worker at different firms and mm. them transitioning and then you see that like it actually matters a great deal who your employer is for your wage which suggests that the law of one price just isn't as you know uh, dispositive in the labor market as uh, uh, as we as we thought and so so once you once you kind of have these kind of empirical pieces of the puzzle, you're kind of sort of thinking, okay, what's like a framework that helps us make sense of it? And monopsony sort of comes up again as a as a way to see that. And the, the nice thing about monopsony also is that it makes predictions about how flows of of workers should respond to like wage changes. And that's something that other models of imperfections in the labor market just don't make as clean predictions about something so easily observable. So, you know, we have other models like efficiency wages or adverse selection or, you know, uh, various human capital stories. But, but what's nice about monopsony is that you can kind of really relate it to something like seeing this worker switch from this employer to this employer, depending on the wage difference between this employer and that employer. And that's kind of like a nice thing that you can kind of look at and measure and get an empirical handle on how much monopsony power could there actually be in the labor market. Yeah, what other ways are there to m measure the effect of monopsony? Could you the effect of monopsony yeah, or yeah, the yeah. amount of monopsony? I oh, know the amount of monopsony, sorry. So, so generically what you're trying to look for, is, or what I think is like kind of the ideal experiments are kind of looking for things that um, change the, the, that either directly change workers' mobility, yes. and then you see how much wages yes. uh, of employers respond. Mm. So that's like the UAE experiment. Yes, um, we'll to, uh, Or there's other things where you like, see a firm's like labor productivity jump up for some random reason, like they get a patent or they, uh, uh, nice. okay. and, and then, then you, you see check where the wages also, where the wages right, increase. Right, okay. And so the idea is that like, oh, if you were facing a competitive labor market, there's no reason that any, a high productivity firm should start paying higher wages, because you should just take the market wages given. But if in fact there's like monopsony in the labor market, then high productivity firms are willing to like hire more workers and pay a higher wage to get those more workers. And so then you'll see like a correlation between the firm's sort of shocks to their productivity and how much uh, and how much wage they're paying. Okay. Groovy, now let's talk about your Oregon paper. The, the Oregon paper. Yes, monopsony uh, and movers, the elasticity yes. of labor supply to firm wage policies. So again, this is where you're trying to measure. Measure, yep. Measure, and this is your obsession, measuring monopsony power. Why is this so hard to do empirically? Because it's hard to get um, instruments for firm uh, wages right. um, that don't affect other firms. So what you need is like a uh, shock. Okay. So, so one of... A, Kind of a classic. You need something paper. idiosyncratic. You need something idiosyncratic to the firm. So mm -hmm. the, a classic paper in this space is actually by Steger and co-authors um, uh, that basically. So there's the the, the Veterans Affairs Hospital, mm. which is you know hires nurses, but is often in labor markets where there's other hospitals that also have nurses. Right. So what? But what the VA does, it's controlled, you know, federal government. And so the the there was a policy change where the VA raised this wages for nurses. And then you could see whether or not the other hospitals in the vicinity of the VA hospitals also had to raise their wages for their nurses. Mm. So that's like an immediate kind of example of like, oh, well, these neighboring hospitals kind of like faced a shock 
uh, the, the VA hospital, you know, raised its wages, and then how much did it, uh, did you, did you see the responsiveness of um, near, nearby hospitals? So, um, sorry, I just wanted to, to, to uh, you know, there's other, there's other papers that have looked at, for example, um, I mentioned patents or uh, uh, another paper is like looked at like worker deaths. So when a worker dies at a, <laughs> at a workplace, like what yeah. happens to sales and uh, payroll? So like you take a small firm like of, yes. of around ten workers. Now imagine um, so one paper in the U.S. by Adam Eisen that looks at um, uh, it's been a while since I read this, uh, but he looks at sales. In these small firms, you can yeah. see log sales and then log payroll. Right. And then the question is, does sales fall by a lot more than payroll okay. when yeah, a worker yeah, dies? Yeah. Because that gives you an estimate of the gap between the, the value that that worker was generating and the wage that it was costing. <laughs> and, so, and so you get that like uh, there's, a, there's a gap. I think he gets something that the elasticity, the implied elasticity of labor supply facing the firm in that's like maybe three, something like that, maybe 2.5. Um, uh, such a cool natural experiment. Yeah, uh, or yeah, natural. That's, uh, <laughs> it's uh, fantastic, isn't There's it? another paper <laughs> that is not an obscene focused paper by, by, by Simon Yeager and uh, Jörg Henning, I think, that um, looks at uh, uh, worker deaths in Germany mm. and then looks to see what happens to the wages of your coworkers in the same occupation. So the idea is that, like, oh, if you if if your co if a coworker of your dies and you're like a close substitute, mm. then your employer needs you a lot more, yes, and so your yeah. wages go up. Right, right, right. <laughs> um, which again, if like wages were just set in a competitive market, there'd be no need to pay the coworkers of a recently dead worker higher. <laughs> uh, and so so that gives you another uh, kind of like lens into into That's monopsony. So, but what we're trying to do is actually something a little bit um, simpler, and just uh, just to show that you can do it, um, mm -hmm. which is to isolate the component. So, one of the important things that monopsony gives you is the scope for wages to uh, the, for firms to set wages. Yes. So that means an important thing is like the firms have wage policies, so that it's not just the case that you see a worker, you see their their wage in the market, you pay that wage. Mm -hmm. You have to make some decisions about what wages to pay, mm -hmm. how to you know pay bonuses, how to set uh, pay scales, you know, job titles, all of this kind of things that anybody that looks at a human resource manager textbook, mm. you'll see there's an actual job there to do. Uh, and so, so you know, that, that process of how firms set wages is an important thing to understand. And it's an important policy lever also for, like, policymakers to think of, like, how can we affect firm wage setting practices? Um, uh, and part of the evidence for this, by the way, is, is from... from Two, two other pieces of evidence for this is that all of these recent voluntary wage increases by mm. firms, like mm. firms saying that we're going to pay $15 minimum wages or yes. $11 minimum wages, um, uh, that suggests that there was they weren't paying it before and now they're paying it. And they're paying uh, suspiciously round numbers. So it's like $10 or $12.50 or $15. It's never like... Twelve thirty-three. Why well, is it suspicious to have a? Because if you could think that if the if it was just like again the law of one price in the in the labor market, and it was just kind of this clearing of supply and demand, mm -hmm. you'd imagine that the market price for a unit of labor oh, sure, sure, sure. would the just market, be some yeah, weird yeah, number, yeah, like an course, airfare. Like yeah. think of like when you're looking for airfares, you get these yeah. weird quote, yeah. quoted prices. But like when there's uh, room for lots of when there's lots of frictions in the labor market, you see the people, the firms are like, I don't know what your marginal product is. Here's ten bucks. I right. Okay. So they're just plucking a number <laughs> the, that sounds yes. good rather than that really yes. reflects the sort of market. And, it, and workers aren't fooled. And we have another paper where we kind of run experiments where we have a bunch of 
evidence on this. It's not that workers think that $10 is a lot more than $9.99. It's that employers have no idea what your marginal product is, mm -hmm. and so they just pick like a round number and like pay that. And so that's another like kind of piece of, of the pie for... Uh, right, for so the fact that employers pick arbitrary numbers show that they have... Market power. Yeah, and so, yeah, And no. it's kind of an interesting thing that the reason you can have firms you know, normally we think that like, oh, it's consumers that can be behavioral, mm -hmm. but firms are have to be like profit maximizing. Yes. But that's only under the condition of perfect competition that'll drive out the irrational firms. Right. So when you don't have perfect competition, then you have plenty of room for firms to be making mistakes. Yes. And they're not going to get driven out of business. Right. Okay. Um, and so that's like an implication of monopsonies also that firms are just going to like get it wrong yeah. in their wage practices all the time. So one of the results from that other paper, which uses the Oregon data also, which is just that when you look across states, like the modal wage when we can see it yeah. is overwhelmingly like ten dollars. <laughs> so, even though the means are different, the like standard deviations are different, the medians are oh, different, crazy. but the mode is almost always ten dollars or the minimum wage. So it's like you, one yeah. of those two is either higher, yeah. and uh, 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 and so it just suggests, and it's like. Why would it be ten dollars? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, and, and so, yeah. So that and so this 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 Oregon paper yeah. is kind of trying to isolate the component of wages that's due to firm uh, that's due to the firm's uh, setting wages. So what you're kind of doing is you're seeing you see a worker at a firm and you see their wage. And then what you try to do is isolate the component of wages that's being driven by firms. So you kind of can look at like. That's why the title of the paper is called Monopsony Among Movers. Is that you kind of see how much wages change when a worker switches into that firm versus switching out, and that component is like the firm effect. And then the question is, how much is turnover related to the firm component of wages? And the idea that that gives you kind of an estimate of how much monopsony power there is, because if turnover was super sensitive to this firm yeah. component of wages, it would imply that the labor market was really competitive. Yes, yes. And, and, uh, uh, and so that like small differences in wages across firms lead to like big differences in turnover. But if you find that that difference is small, then it suggests that there's like a considerable amount of monopsony, and so- People can't move, right? And people don't move, that aren't that sensitive to, to wage differences. And what we've, what we find is that it's you know it's moderate. It's like uh, I think the implied elasticity is again somewhere around 2.5 to 3, mm -hmm. which I think is like kind of a number that I, when I see this in lots of different contexts, I feel like we get numbers somewhere in that range of oh, really? of three. So that means like a 10% decrease in your wage results in a 30% uh, uh, increase in turnover. Okay. Think of that. Uh, okay. um, and uh, um, and uh, um, and so, uh, which so it's not like mm -hmm. one, mm -hmm. <laughs> which is what we find in the UAE. Yes, <laughs> uh, yeah. uh, but it's also not like ten, no, no, which no. is what we think was like pretty close to perfect competition. Um, and no, and you know, an important rule, a good rule of thumb, is that the the markdown on your wage is this elasticity over one plus this elasticity. So if you um, if you think that you're, you're, if the labor supply elasticity is three, it means that you're getting paid something like seventy five percent of your marginal product. Um, and so that means that there's a considerable amount of room for like a minimum wage to like raise Hell your yeah. wage yeah. and not cost you any employment because yes. that's the gap. And not uh, and, and may I may I add, maybe I, maybe not just necessarily minimum wage but also the idea unions. of wage boards. Wage boards, unions, because all kinds of. We're not just talking about the bottom here, are we? Yeah, no, no. In fact, and I think that's an interesting point. One of the results in this Oregon papers is is uh, is that's interesting is that. Um, 
the, our estimates of monopsony are higher for like the, the highest quartile of, or uh, uh, lowest for the highest quartile of, of, of workers yes. in the sense that like the workers that are facing the most monopsony are kind of in some ways the most skilled in the sample of workers that are paid like hourly wages. And, uh, um, and so uh, that's that's interesting because it's yes. it's not necessarily the bottom end of the labor market that's facing the yeah, most monopsony. Maybe we should maybe we should just segue briefly to talk about Aaron Dubay's uh, wage boards. Just can you yep. just briefly describe those for the listeners because uh, I think they're fantastic and I just think that's a useful point to mention. Yeah, I mean, in case wait, people are so wage, wage boards, boards are basically like. Uh, so the idea is just to import the Australian system. <laughs> uh, so for the, for, if you want the shorthand answer, it's, which is just like to set like uh, uh, minimum wages at think of at like the region cross occupation cross industry level, and the idea is that like so the just having. Uh, you know, national minimum wages or even regional minimum wages can only get you at the bottom of the labor right. market. But, but if you think if there's monopsony the all the way yeah. through, yeah. then there's like rooms to set wages kind of like throughout the economy, and you can think that that's what unions did uh, can do again. Mm -hmm. I'm 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 more on the on the union front mm -hmm. than the wage boards front because of you know I'm like there's there's. There's no way a wage board is going to make like a, a low wage retailer like a high wage retailer. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you've got to have both, right? The wage um, board is likely to represent a wage board. The power of a wage board is likely to partly reflect the strength of union. If you've got a very weak union, it might. Be yeah, so I appreciate uh, that the the union density is different in Australia, and yet they still manage to get it up. But yeah. I, I think that if you had very very low union density, it might be harder to expect a big effect of a wage board. Yeah, although I think like in the U.S. context, they're sort of seen as a substitute. But like we're never going to get density yes, back up, yeah. and so we should get we should just like. Uh, but both do, are good. More is better. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's an interesting conversation about like. No, I think there are actually are potentially real differences. Um, I think there are trade-offs between. Uh, I, I think they do different things. So like, yeah, what what yeah. unions can do is go after actors like, you know, in my dream world, they're going after actors higher up in the value chain. So like you're not just negotiating at the you're not just trying to get money out of this yeah. employer yes. you're trying to get money out of like that employer's employer yes, and yes. the employer's employer's employer and ultimately you want to get like private equity at the bargaining table yeah. um, uh, but but yeah that's that's maybe orthogonal to what we were what we were talking about um, right now here's another question that I had yeah. about monopsony and I was thinking about your work so you've also looked at um, industrializing Britain in the 19th century yep. and monopsony's there yeah and that got me thinking <laughs> that got me thinking so that was sort of about employers using in the courts to protect and preserve their advantage and to limit labor market mobility in cases where it's advantageous for laborers to move. Yep. And I was wondering, reflecting on that case in Oregon and the UAE, which we'll come to in a minute, what similarities do you see in monopsony? I mean, I wonder if there's anything that a sort of a trend that you see about how monopsony works or something like that across all these different contexts, because you've looked at it in so many different contexts. And I was wondering if there's any similarity. Yeah, here's the here's the generic rule: employers make money off of like keeping wages below marginal product, and so when they have the political prerogatives to like secure that and enhance that, they use it. And so when before the uh, you know uh, before the expansion of the franchise in like late 19th century England, they're like bringing back master and servant law to 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 criminalize absc absconding, um, and it's like oh yeah because they don't want turnover. And, so, right. and similarly in the UAE, they don't want turnover um, mm -hmm. and uh, they, don't want, uh, they, they don't want labor market competition. And so I think you, know, you can explain a, kind of a, also a big chunk of the political economy of labor market mm -hmm. policy from, not all of it obviously, yeah, yeah. but like there's parts of it that, that, get, that help get 
explained by this, you know, the view that monopsony it creates labor-hungry employers yes. that are not willing to raise the wage. So you're like, this, it's like the empirical signature of monopsony is employers that are like, we need more workers, we need more training programs, we need more skills, but they're not willing to raise the wage to get those things. And, uh, uh, and so the, the, that's, and I think you sort of, and, and they're willing to like fight hard for policies that mean that they don't, that get them additional labor without them having to raise the wage. And I think, um, I don't know if you see this, this new book out called Entrenchment. It's about how it, the, the argument is that a lot of our politics is motivated by a desire to re, re well, entrench our control. And I guess maybe over time, many employers or business associations try to entrench their monopsony power. They try to push for policies and legislation that might, in, that might limit workers' capacity to move. So I guess that's not just a question of a single policy, but how they build up that power over time. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, why do employers really hate expansions of unemployment insurance? <laughs> it's like, they, uh, uh, they, they, why do employers kind of love EITC expansions? Uh, they want workers and don't want to have to pay for it. Yeah. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and so part of that is, um, I, I think it's obvious they, they, don't, they don't want to pay for it. I think the extent to which they're willing to limit wage competition, like they're willing to limit employer competition depends on where they are in the labor market. But as you know, you've noted, like the, the, the sort of rise of non-competes and the no poaching agreements yes. across franchisees yes. that we've sort of seen suggest that you know, if you give them the legal scope to do it, they'll do it. Mm, um, absolutely. Now I want to jump continents yep. and go to the UAE. Yep. So you have this paper on monopsony power migrant labor markets yep. and again your hypothesis is that employers often underpay workers due to workers' dearth of exit options, and that if workers have greater capacity to switch employers, then their wages might increase. That's your sort of hypothesis. Yeah, and to investigate that, <laughs> that's your rational idea. To investigate that, you uh, explore a policy in reform that basically increase workers' capacity to switch employers. Yeah. Uh, so can you tell me about the, the details of the Kafala sponsorship scheme? Yeah, so for people that don't know, so. Uh, uh, it's a really interesting thing. I love studying the Gulf countries. They're just fascinating, and they're their own. They're their own world. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, so, you know, and it's also very interesting. So, like uh, Glenn Glenn Weil has this paper about arguing that per capita, the GCC countries do more to reduce global inequality than all of Europe because they let in so many more people per capita from the poorest countries and increase their income so much that their net contribution to global inequality is like huge that per capita. That is fantastic. Uh, um, I hadn't seen that, that. that's yeah. awesome. And, <laughs> but country. you know, it also comes in with this like, oh, you're getting these guest workers that yes. are basically indentured. Yes, yes. <laughs> and it's terribly exploitative. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so I find that that normative puzzle just like kind of Fabulous. And that's something I really like about this paper that doesn't just look at workers in countries, their current yeah. employed, but also if you, and we'll come to that. Yeah. But I love that uh, aspect of it. And so the Kafala system, yes. and particularly prior to the reform that mm. we study, you came in, uh, you had a sponsor, uh, the employer, mm. and you couldn't leave your employer during the, the, the three-year spell of the contract. And, um, and so the three year, and, and so during that, uh, uh, during that three years, yes. you were basically stuck at that employer. And then it had to be that when your contract was up, you either had to go back to your source country or you had to renew with, the, with your original employer. There was no chance to job mm, shop mm. at all. And the way that that was enforced is that you needed what was called like, a, like your employer had to give you a no objection certificate for you to go work for another employer. So then in 
in this reform that we see. And this is coming across the Gulf, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This Catholicism is coming across. It's in Qatar. It's in, it's and it in, has, as you say, colonial roots. Like, this isn't something new. It, this it, is a historical... Yeah, so it's, I mean, migrant labor has been coming into the Gulf for a, mm. for a long time since the oil, mm. uh, uh, and, and, the, and the Kafala system, in its current incarnation, I think, was, was engineered by the, by the British in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, uh, anyway, sorry, so yeah. now we have the reform. Um, so, so, yeah, then we have this reform that basically said that you don't need this no-objection certificate anymore. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so then workers now, at the end of their three years, they can now uh, try to switch employers. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, so that creates competition in the labor mm-hmm. market. And, you know, from the point of view of monopsony, that makes the labor supply facing the firm more elastic. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and so that means that, you know, before the reform, you were basically saying to your workers, well, yeah, I'll pay you, you know, X dollars, take it or leave it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people would take it because they didn't have any offers. Sure. But after this reform, the idea was that employers uh, now were like, oh, I now have to like actually worry about mm-hmm. uh, uh, the, the wage I pay. And so they like pay a higher wage. And you do see a little bit of increased mobility across employers, mm-hmm. but not a lot. Uh, where the action really comes, is people don't go back to the Gulf, uh, go, don't go back to, to to their home country nearly as much, and so you're kind of walking up the labor supply curve back to yes, the source right, country, okay. and um, and so uh, and so that's kind of interesting that even though what was made easier was switching across employers, that only happened a little bit. What happened a lot more was that people that had previously been going back to their source country are now staying in the UAE and renewing their contracts. Um, and so, uh, and that lets you get like an estimate of the labor supply elasticity facing uh, employers in the in the UAE, because it's, you're, you see how much more their uh, the, the rate of going back to India as a function of the wage kind of changes with this reform, and that's kind of like the, the turnover rate. <laughs> One question I had in reading this paper is how accurate is the underlying data? It's awesome. It's administrative data from the Ministry of Labor coupled matched to payroll records from... So oh, that's, that's a, so why do we have payroll records? So basically there had been a whole bunch of accounts of wage theft in the late 2000s. So the authorities in the UAE had mandated like an electronic wage payment system. And so there was like basically like six companies that wound up satisfying the job of, of administering electronic payrolls. And so my co-authors had worked with one of those companies and so they had the payroll records from those companies. And so those are the actual payroll records going back to those workers. So this case study is basically a Suresh Nadu birthday present, like the idea of the reform increasing workers' capacity to move plus excellent accuracy. Plus administrative data, yeah. <laughs> it's I mean, like you can imagine a better birthday uh, present. Yeah, it's, uh, 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 it's great. And then the other part of the data is the, the Ministry of Labor itself like has the universe of employment contracts for mm. all the migrant workers. Mm. And so you could just link these two data sets and that worked pretty well. It's a uh, Okay, and so I, I wanted to uh, go back to this point about distinguish between between incumbent workers yep. and new workers. Can you tell me how you did that? Like, how one why you did that? Uh, like, even to think about the new workers, I thought was really awesome. Like, so often I think we look at these things as closed systems, where uh-huh. clearly in the case of immigration, it's not. It really isn't. So yeah, tell me about the what you track and how you did it. Yeah. So I mean, all we we really did was so we can see the thing that people are less willing to go back. But then, kind of, you can immediately then ask, uh, well, what about the new recruits? Yeah. Don't um, the more people and, come. Or um, and uh, you can think that it's like potentially interesting and ambiguous because you're 
uh, now what it's an interesting thing about monopsony is that you're now keeping more of the people that had already been here, which means that your need to hire new people is less. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so that's what you sort of find is that you're bringing in fewer uh, new recruits. What's also interesting is that the entry wage for those new recruits also falls at the firm level. So it suggests there's also something else happening in the recruitment market that is means that there's uh, that it doesn't even look like there's perfect competition at the level of like recruiting workers in India to come to the UAE, which is kind of something that we're currently have an RCT in the field to kind of studying that. Um, uh, the like whole recruitment process mm -hmm. um, to, to get to the Gulf. Uh, but, but, and so that's the kind of interesting trade-off is that one of the populations that you've kind of made at least a little bit worse off by mm -hmm. making things better for the incumbent migrants mm -hmm. is by you've lowered the demand for the new migrants. And so then you have potentially have these people that wanted to come to the Gulf that are not getting it uh, are not getting an offer anymore because people that had already been in the Gulf are like more likely to be renewed. Um, and you know, I think it illustrates like a, it's a always a thing <laughs> with 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 immigration mm -hmm. is how do you think of the incidence of who's in and who's out and who's de who's deserving of transfers and who isn't. And so I think like our intuition is like, oh, someone's here, they're working for us, they've made like social ties here. Mm -hmm our labor market protection should extend to them and well, uh, uh, and but it's an interesting deontological approach I would take a more consequentialist approach so my question would be yep does it make does the reform make more people better off so I well, guess you but were it asked, depends on their net like don't you think you should value the net, the fact that the potential immigrants haven't had three years of UAE wages yet mm -hmm. while the people that have already been here have had three years of UAE wages mm -hmm. so uh, everything else equal, those are richer people that are now benefiting mm, mm. relative to the poorer people that a are potential aristocracy. A labor, <laughs> a labor aristocracy, that's right. And, I would never uh, think uh, of a Gulf, but you know, yeah. watch the Gulf as a labor aristocracy. Uh, 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 I think relative to the pool of workers. No, sure, in, yeah, in, yeah, in, yeah, for sure. In, uh, you know, in Bangladesh, I think someone told me that you know, they basically got like 50,000 visas for Malaysia, or maybe it was 3,000 mm -hmm. visas, some, some large number of visas, and then basically like a million people Mm. Uh, applied yeah, it's course, like yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, and you know partly what I also appreciate about this is just that the normative consequences of, of you know uh, who's in and who's out are like really laid stark or yes. really made quite stark yes. here it's that you know you can uh, the you can redistribute within a country and that will not necessarily if you think that we should be worrying about the inequality across countries mm. then this is complicated. So here's a question. If I want, if I, let's suppose I was concerned about extreme poverty, mm -hmm. that was my major concern, and I wanted to take as many people as possible out of extreme poverty, would I not have reformed the kafala system? So you're not really getting the extreme poor with the kafala system at all, because okay. you're getting able-bodied workers, right, yeah, okay, um, okay, okay. and uh, you're but getting able-bodied male workers. Yeah, okay, uh, but even from, if you put the poverty, uh, of course it's slightly wealthier people that are able to migrate, because you have to pay huge fees in order to... Yeah, well, average. that's an interesting, yeah, so lots of people go into money lending debt and stuff, so yes. it, is, it is definitely right, like the... Let's suppose, let's, suppose, let's suppose I've got my extreme poverty line at, I don't know, $4 a day or uh -huh. something there, would that capture it? Let's see, like, I mean, if you went, I think you're getting people that are like, Making kind of average Indian GDP per capita ish, um, you know. So they're like in the middle of the Indian income distribution. Okay. Um, maybe right, let me rephrase my question. Yeah. Suppose I want to reduce the number of people close to the bottom. Mm -hmm. 
do I not reform the kafala system? Do you see what I mean? That if I'm concerned about, so there's a one question which goes back to our wage board discussion about getting, you know, the incumbent workers getting paid a slightly better wage, and they're already in the Gulf. But suppose I want to reduce. Yeah, the so I, I guess at, I'm still at the lower end. So you know, so the question is, do you want to expand? I mean, it's the old. Mm. Uh, I, I feel like the. Let me restate your question. Please. Here's the question you want. Can you give me here, a better here. question? Yeah, That's here's, what a, I'd like here's the better question, which is, shouldn't we, in fact, take the trade-off of letting many more people into the Gulf, even if they're all paid a little bit less, right, yeah, because yeah. you're going to kind of yeah. boost the incomes yeah, yeah, yeah. of so many more people. This is like Robert Putnam's questions and reasons for passing. Yeah, yes, uh, and and uh, uh, and so the you know the book that sort of frames this trade-off is kind of the this Price of Rights book by Martin Roos that's kind of like the countries that let the most people in yeah. um, are the ones that are most repressive. Mm -hmm. And the, and that you're, and Franco Milanovic also makes an argument like this in, in his Global Inequality book that, you know, what the, one of the big remedies for global inequality should be to have these like second class uh, citizen, oh yeah, this is this big uh, argument. Uh, yeah, don't uh, give them rights. Just let more people. Uh, in. Just yeah, let yeah. more. Mm. Just let more people in. And so that's that's the the uh, that's the question that people uh, that people want you to have an answer to this question mm -hmm. of like mm -hmm. where are you on this trade off between uh, between rights and poverty? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, you know, I'm gonna kind of say that like I think it's a wrong-headed thing because mm -hmm. the levels of repression it would take to uh, admit uh, enough people to make a dent in poverty and keep yes. them in the status of second-class citizens mm -hmm. would just be the kind of thing a democratic society just couldn't do yes, yes. Um, in the first place, which is why the UAE can mm -hmm. kind of do it and why like non-democracies mm -hmm. like Singapore and stuff can do it is because, you know, they've, uh, um, they, they've got like already are not Necessarily extending political liberties to their, their 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 citizens, so it's not so hard to think of oh migrant workers not having political liberties. But if you really want to keep a hard line between citizens and non-citizens, mm -hmm. that's just really hard for like a democratic society to do, uh, as we see with crises on the border all the time. Um, but I think there are loads of parallel debates, like for example, uh, the idea that immigrants should be exempt from minimum wage laws, for example. Yep. Um, yeah, so I think like, uh, okay, so the, the again, I think like having these differential enforcement regimes is just really hard to maintain. Yeah. Um, partly because like it just erodes, I think, the, the, the trust and legitimacy of the enforcement arms when you have these like multiple standards uh, for citizens and non-citizens. But the, the other point is that when you do that, you actually erode the political support for migration in lots of ways. So unless you can really commit to protecting native-born workers from labor market competition of natives in some way, you're going to kind of undermine the political basis for support for immigration. So it's why I'm kind of a, you know, uh, labor immigration with full labor market protections kind of thing is that you don't want to the pressure of labor market competition to then hurt native workers so much that there's like this yeah, kind absolutely. of ba ba backlash to this, to this thing. I mean, there might be a backlash anyway, just because people are racist, but uh, no. uh, to, uh, um, uh, so, so 
otherwise the native workers will see others undercutting them. Yes, and then, yeah, yes. so I think that's like 19th century American workers are incredibly racist towards Chinese yeah. because there's no tool for protecting them mm. institutionally from labor market competition from really low wage labor. So your argument is that if immigration reduces income, uh, global income inequality, which it does, the best way to achieve that is by strong labor market regulations because that keeps the native born workers happy because they're not in Or like at, le at least yeah. like let's, is one it, of the tools for maintaining yep. political support for, 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 for Okay, immigration. now I have another question. Yep. So, we've looked at these two papers on monopsony, we've shown that we can measure it, this these papers do really cool ways of trying to measure it and show its effects. Suppose I've got a listener who's doing a PhD, uh -huh. and they're like, Suresh, I like your idea of monopsony, I want to explore it. Could you give them a couple of ideas of other things that they might look at? Other ways they might approach, like that UAE case study was like perfect, right? But could, are there other examples? I mean, there's so many, it's so good. I'm so glad you asked that because you can imagine that there's many, many places that. What should I be world, looking for? What should I be looking for? You should be looking for either a context where you can show up as an employer and randomize the wage for your own kind of job. Mm. So you offer a bunch of identical jobs and then you randomize the wage and then you see how much people are like willing to take your job. Right. And so lots of people do this in survey experiments mm. all over. Mm. Uh, there's a paper by, by uh, Breza and Kaur and uh, Shamshadri that does this in India where they like randomize wage offers in public and in private and look at how accept rates are different in public and private. Um, and so you get like kind of a monopsony estimate mm. out of that. And so you can imagine there's lots of places in developing countries where you can literally show up as an employer and offer the exact same job and just randomize the wage mm -hmm. and then see how the exception, accept rate varies with that wage. And that gives you a clean mm -hmm. uh, uh, monopsony estimate. Uh, the other thing you can do is try to look for this kind of like firm level shocks to productivity from either exports or patents. Patents. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that, so that paper's uh, done. The patents paper by, by uh, Klein et al. Mm -hmm. um, but there's many, many different like firm-specific shocks that uh, th then then let you sort of see uh, uh, that, and as long as you can measure separations and turnover. So you if can a firm, for example, had a reputational crisis, like if it was implicated in some kind of, and it lost sales, yes, and then yes, you yes. saw how much their wages fell yes, and their yeah. turnover increased. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, okay, so that happens all oh, the time. That might happen all the time. I mean, a, 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 another example is is kind of oh, you all of a sudden have like a really steep demand for your product, or you get a government contract. So uh -huh. there's a paper that looked at the stimulus bill and like looked at firms that got a lot of uh, contracts from the stimulus bill mm -hmm. and looked at how much wages those firms increased versus, uh, and got an estimate of the amount of monopsony power from that by seeing how much those firms raised employment and wages. Okay, so those are all papers designed to calculate um, and measure monopsony power. Yep. What might then be the sort of second generation after that of working out how to yeah. tackle it? Well, there's how to tackle it, well, and it's, there's also like it's not the only thing going on, and it's countervailed by many things. Yeah, so like no, sure, this ten dollar right. an hour sort of argument mm -hmm. means that there's there's just like lots of scope for firms to do other things inside the labor market. Mm -hmm. But so you know the strict narrow view of monopsony is that firms are just holding down wages mm -hmm. and like making profits off of that. Mm -hmm. But I think the more interesting view is that like because there's this kind of imperfect competition, firms are just kind of doing all kinds of strange things inside. Uh, the wage space and trying to solve like num a, a number of problems in a bunch of idiosyncratic uh, ways. So I'll give one, which mm -hmm. is I think 
what's really interesting is when, as, as we, I think, know that there's this very strong like reciprocity and gift exchange kinds of things happening in the labor market where workers respond to like high wages with more effort. And so those kinds of efficiency wage arguments then interact with monopsony and countervail it. Mm-hmm. And so you can imagine that a firm has both monopsony power and is facing efficiency mm-hmm. wage problems. They might actually, those two things might actually offset each other in such that the firm actually kind of looks like perfect competition. No, right. <laughs> um, uh, uh, just because these two things happen to be of the oh, same I magnitude. See, right. So that makes it get a bit messy. That, but it's interesting then, because yeah. then you have to like you get one estimate for how much monopsony power you have, and then you need another estimate for how how important the efficiency wage effects are. But uh, can I ask another yeah. question? We've kind of been assuming that monopsony is a bad thing. Mm, no, it's. Uh, I didn't say that. Or, oh, okay, it's, sorry, it's, sorry, it's, sorry. It's, uh, I have been assuming mm-hmm. monopsony is a bad thing, and let me question that. So maybe someone might. I told you that actually it's good for workers' wages to be held down. So if we look at South Korea, labor repression generally might be argued to have enabled firms to reinvest those their profits, and thereby that sort of enabled economic growth. How would you counter the argument that monopsony? Not saying that. Yeah, 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 yeah. no, 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 no. It's a good. It's like uh, it's always the case that uh, like the exact parallel cases with patents and monopoly power, right? Mm-hmm. You so the reason we give patents monopoly power is because we think they incentivize some like ex ante research and development expenditure. Yes. And so monopoly power. How is that power, parallel to monopoly? Because the idea is that like you're giving monopsony profits to a firm in order to incentivize some uh, some ex ante investment. Um, and so, so I'm saying it's not like yeah, the savings yeah, from the profits. Yeah. It's actually the the fact that you're going to make profits off of yeah. the, all this monopsony power is incentivizing you to start the factory in the first place. Mm. Um, and uh, um, and you know that that might in fact be like the model of economic development that 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 uh, lots you know lots yeah. of countries mm-hmm. lots of countries have. I think you want to be careful that saying that that's like necessarily means that this is the only way to incentivize uh, that investment, and that you couldn't do it with you know more corporatist planning kinds of things. Uh, uh, and I, you know, it's beware. I, I'm always like mm-hmm. like wary of stories that need to like come up with like ex post justifications. Well, there might be this other thing going on that makes this thing kind of uh, 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 justified. I mean, sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. Um, how, how do we get on this? Because it's just one of my yeah. random tangents. But okay, here's another question. Yeah. How would you design a study to work out whether monopsony power is a good idea for the US economy? I don't know what that... Like, uh, could you, like, could you, so if we're saying that Monopsony power is bad for those specific workers who are employed at that specific firm, but there might be another argument that allowing more monopsony power would enable growth in firms, enable... How do we work out whether monopsony is good overall for the economy? I think what I mean one of the things you can do is is imagine building an experiment where you like in this UAE example, mm, for mm, example, mm. imagine that you saw uh, in in addition to this, I mean, you kind of already mm. see it in the UAE thing with this potential worker, mm-hmm. with this mm-hmm. potential migrants versus mm-hmm. the incumbent migrants, is that there's a trade-off there because you're like, you're, you, you know, you're not spending as much on these new guys because mm-hmm. you've like um, uh, have less monopsony power. So that would be an effect on the workers employed. But I was just wondering about. You but you can imagine they, they're also then like invest less or like yeah, do yeah, do yeah, less yeah. in the way of, of construction. But it's an important thing about monopsony is that it's inefficient, right? So that impl- that quantities are held down. 
because employers are trying to make more profits. Yes. So you're not employing as many workers as you once would because you're like, well, I'm willing to take the like mm -hmm. high turnover yeah. and high attrition in order to make more profits. So on a first pass thing, there's like a win-win a, a thing about paying higher wages and like expanding the volume of production. Now, if you thought that the, literally it was important to give employers profits because they're going to do something magic with it, yes. um, which is, you know, of course, the <laughs> entrepreneurs will just like take the profits and give us all unicorns. Yeah. Uh, um, they and it, uh, uh, the, and um, the, yeah, so you'd have to believe that there's a virtue in them restricting production, mm -hmm. restricting output, pocketing the profits, mm -hmm. and then reinvesting that in something magical. Um, that's or something really or valuable. Or it could be R and D. It could be R and D. That's right. right. But that's, that's like the patents. Yeah, that's yeah, the yeah, that's yeah. the patents analogy. Is that you know we either as an ex ante yeah, incentive yeah, yeah. or as an ex post like actual amount of money to invest. I mean, you can imagine though in an economy with credit constraints, you don't need to finance new investment out of like monopsony profits you can go get a loan yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it seems like a really uh inefficient way to like get a, entrepreneur profits is to like give them a bunch of monopsony power and tell them to save out of those profits and go invest it in something great and it's, uh, it has a bit of a rube goldberg flavor to it <laughs> i'm with you okay so now i think what we've done is we've looked at your paper on democracy and growth we've looked at two different papers on monopsony we've given people a bunch of ideas of how they might explore it now yep. i'd like to ask you a more personal question Suresh. oh boy that is, I've always wondered about, what is your ideal political economy? Like, I, I, I'm interested because I, I'd like to know how far left you are, Suresh. Like, what, how would you like to construct the world? Like, the, or the US, for example. The, the, these are very different questions. <laughs> uh, um, I feel like more, most safe, I guess, answering my ideal political economy in the sense of like, how do I think about economics? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, which is just kind of like, yes, there's an important part of it that is about kind of the theme of what we've talked about, which is really trying to do political economy in the sense of, of integrating the study of power into how we think mm -hmm. about economics, mm -hmm. both in terms of like really the structure of government and, and democratic politics and making that part of how, you know, integral to how we think about the performance of, of, of economies, but also then looking inside markets and inside workplaces and inside, you know, uh, product markets and uh, land markets and housing markets and look for roles of power there. And that's like a political economy that lives inside the market not necessarily in the level of the state. So that's what I, when you ask me what's my ideal political economy. So I mean sort of the sort of, in the, um, in the sort of anarchy, Marxism, where, like how would you, what, what kind of, how would you like, th how do you think the American economy should be reconfigured? Like big trade unions, like what, how do you think, what would be a better scenario, what would be a, a design for you? See, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a designer. Right, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm interested in like, Improving the capacity to solve collective action problems of All right, like particular actors. How would you like actors. to do that? How, what would be um, a couple of things that you'd like to see happen? Okay, so I, I've given you my my uh, my value chain collective bargaining idea, which is like one of the things it'll take to bring uh, to to get like unions to or collective action of workers back together again is to like form some legal architecture that lets you go up the value chain and, and bring the whole value chain to the bargaining table. And what might that legal architecture look like? It's basically something where you keep like uh, suppliers on the, uh, of like sort of core inputs like land, intellectual property, finance. You make them sort of pick up part of the wage bill 
uh, at the bottom end of the uh, 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 of the labor market, which is the paradigm. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't come up with this. Was like actually justice for janitors, yes. uh, where they didn't go to just the uh, employers of the janitors. They went to the building that had subcontracted the employers and got the deal from them. And so, the, just this sort of principle that you go up into the 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 uh, up into the value chain, and that's where the money is. Yes. And that you know, one of the patterns in the U.S. economy is that we've seen that there's no longer the kinds of mid-century. Uh, m- labor markets we had where we had high profit firms with low wage workers so mm-hmm. there was like money to be grabbed at the firm level we just don't have that anymore right. we have like low wage low wage workers are at low profit you know uh, low wage firms and so their profit margins are too low to really enable uh, so there's just like at that firm level mm. thing we're done like right. firm level uh, uh, collective bargaining is just, you know, done. Right. And so the only thing to get like uh, um, masses of workers at the scale um, and give them enough of a pie to mm-hmm. grab is to get the units that are like higher up in the value chain to like be on the hook for some of the mm-hmm. wage increases at the bottom. And uh, is that possible in different domains? Like janitors is one example. Could it be done elsewhere? So I think retail is another uh, is, is another, and you don't actually retail might actually be easier because Walmart's actually a really big employer. Yes. So there's a great map of the U.S. that has like the largest employer in each state, and uh, the largest employer in each state, and it roughly maps onto like red, blue, and purple. It's like it's either uh, Walmart mm. for like like a huge chunk of states. The largest yes. employer is Walmart, in a bunch of other states, it's public university systems. Those are the blue states. Mm. And then in a bunch of the purple states, it's like the the biggest employer is like a healthcare organization. And that's that's like my, uh, that's like not a bad um, uh, way to think about like where the uh, uh, you know what kind of units need to be uh, brought into. Um, so the, like public universities, you know, they h- employ a lot of high skilled people, mm. but it's only under like social and political pressure that they will. That they will make like wage concessions to kind of the staff that employ that you know they employ in the cafeterias and yes, stuff like that yes. because they subcontract a yes, lot of it. Yeah, huge. And uh, um, you know, so this was like the Harvard Living Wage campaign from uh, like the early two thousands. Um, so, and so I think there's like more strategies like that where you're kind of taking high wage, high profit employers and bringing them so that you, even making them, they're integrated in economic relationships with low-wage employers, and the idea is to make those economic relationships like kind of legally binding. Like, you don't get rid of your political obligation just by outsourcing, or you don't get rid of your social obligation by outsourcing. And so that's kind of, you know, if I had to, and that, that by the way, that idea like goes global. It's like, you don't, just because you uh, don't, just because you're not in a political community with a with like a, a a bunch of workers that are producing your shoes doesn't mean that you don't have the political obligations, which is like directly your work. Okay, so but uh, how do you up the value chain in terms of investors? Is that like, like you were talking about private equity? Yeah. How do you do that? Well, I'm thinking most of the ownership of the, like, so when you think of what they own, they own the land under a hotel, they own the intellectual property that's underneath mm-hmm. the brand, mm-hmm. they own the, the, the mortgages on, mm-hmm. on the land, mm-hmm. um, or they own, or they're like sitting on top of the terms of your like mm-hmm. uh, business credit. And so there's like a bunch of other inputs that are uh, kind of like where a chunk of your expenses are going out that are very con- held in a very concentrated, concentrated way, and that's 
where kind of a lot of the revenue is kind of going out to paying out on those those um, uh, holdings. And so you just need to like get, and how get do the you owners. Get, how do you get the owners? How do you grab the owners? So one is, I mean, so we should ask a lawyer um, right. whether or not you could do this. But I think the, the idea is that once you start tracing like who owes, like, you know, you have your company, you're making a bunch of payments out to your suppliers, and then you trace, like, your supplier suppliers, and so basically big suppliers, uh, or like, uh, and once you start chasing that up, you will basically wind up with some fairly large, probably financial institution somewhere in there. And then that's where, like, the profit center is, yeah. and you have to, like, basically make, put them on the hook for some of the wage increases. So you here. and I can see that value, Shane, and we, we, we can see it, yeah. but how do you? Yeah, I guess. What? That's the tricky question, like making them liable if that isn't already in our sort of social imaginaries. Well, but it's like, how do you, like, what makes a collective bargaining agreement a mm, thing is that yeah. it's legally enforced. And yes, so if you yeah. put a collective bargaining agreement where you sort of say, well, this doesn't just bind on mm. this, uh, this immediate employer, there's actually like terms in here that apply to the whole supply chain, then you basically will form like a big bargaining circle yes. and work it out. Okay, mm -hmm. I have another question. Yeah. Suppose, Suresh, uh, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong here, but perhaps you'd put yourself towards the left of other economists. Would that be fair? You don't like that question? Uh, it's, uh, um, it's, it's impolitic of me to answer. Uh, right. to, okay, okay. To, well, I'll scrap that. I'll scrap yeah. that. I'll scrap but that. yes, okay, who am I kidding? Yes, okay, fine. Okay. Fine, yes. It's, um, Do you think that affects your engagement in economics? And I, I was just thinking that I think that a lot of my listeners might also position themselves to the left. And I wonder what you'd say to them is in terms of like publishing strategies or in terms of engagement in economics. Like, for example, for someone who's a political outsider in their discipline, what sort of things do you recommend they do that they might find helpful? Because I think many people will look to you and say, well, Suresh does really cool stuff, but I also find it quite difficult in that sort of space. I see. You know, you know so in like a context I... where people, you know, in a context where for decades people have said that, oh, minimum wage laws are terrible. In a context where for decades people have said monopsonies don't exist. What sort of things would you advise people who feel that they're swimming against that tide? I mean, I, th I think there's like a real sort of sense in which if you do kind of really empirically, you you get the right answer to an important question. Mm. It's just kind of we, there's enough like, credibility is uh, enough. Uh, th there's but enough lip service. I'm not to sure, is that is that really true? Because those minimum wage studies, you know, there was loads of sort of empirical work on minimum wages, yep. but still people were saying. Psh. I, I I agree. It's like it's you know the the like minimum wage. Speak for itself, it right? does not speak for itself. I I but I I do think that like getting the to the extent that the there is a getting the answer right mm. getting the answer right goes for a gets gets sure. you a, we all want to get, right get the answer right is there anything more oh, oh, okay but so. then you also got to find the places mm. where it's and this is like where the art is mm. where it's like getting the answer right like has some real political stakes mm. behind mm. getting the answer right mm. and so the minimum wage debate's great because there's like uh, I mean, or it's terrible, depending on your point of view, because it's uh, uh, a place where, like, a whole bunch of, like, your opinions about this thing will probably be predictive of your opinions on, like, lots of other questions that have totally nothing to do with the minimum yeah, wage. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, in fact, you can probably uh, show that people that, like, think the minimum wage kills employment also think the fiscal multiplier is less than one. I'm like, oh, you know, why would those two beliefs go together? I don't know. It's, uh, uh, um, so, so the, uh, so 
I think it's like finding questions that where getting the right answer is has like real uh, normative bite, mm -hmm. and the way you do that is by reading. Mm -hmm. I'll just say it like like there's no, uh, and you read lots, and or that's my that's that's what I do. Mm -hmm. It's just read relentlessly, uh, and I'm not sure. My I think it helps you have good ideas, but it also is just like clues for like what other people think is important and interesting outside of economics. And chances are if somebody is finding it interesting outside of economics and you can think of an economics way to answer it, it's it's an, it's, it's an interesting question. So I think this has come up in, in your and I discussions before that you don't just read economic stuff, you read a lot of quality, yeah. political economy stuff. Why, why is that helpful for you in formulating these sort of uh, questions for you using economic methods? Why should an economist read beyond their discipline? Because I think many people complain that economists don't. I want you to explain why it's self-interestedly rational to do so. It's like, I would say that that's actually like, if you want to know about institutional detail, and should we get go to our session? Yes, you're right, we should go uh, to our yeah. session. Uh, sorry, no, wait, sorry, wait, 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 no, sorry, wait, sorry, listeners, we're it. A, okay, give wait, me a 30 uh, uh, It's just like, like, to really, a for sources of data, like you'll often footnote. Like I found that master and servant paper that was footnote chasing from like a book about mm -hmm. 19th century mm -hmm. la English labor market. You're like, oh, where did this data come from? You go back to look at the source. You see there's tons of microdata, and you're like, that's great. Um, and you would just not know it with if you didn't if you didn't read the book. The other is like the kind of like institutional detail and like cool natural experiments that that's how you find out about stuff that happened that other people might not know. Um, and uh, uh, and you know, there's often like an art in sort of seeing how a historian describes something, seeing that there's actually like a real economics logic in there, and then you're like, oh, I can find some data or like make that idea like talk in an economics language, and that's kind of just a source of great ideas. Um, there's other people that have other recipes for finding great ideas, mm -hmm. so I don't want to say this is the only yeah. one, it's, but it's one that like is the one I know how to do. Is just um, read. Okay, read. awesome. So yeah. I want to summarize in 30 seconds. Yep. I'm going to crudely butcher everything you've said. Yep. And then you'll correct me and tell me why I'm terrible. Okay, so in order to understand the relationship between democracy and growth, it's useful to do this very to do this very yeah. persuasive uh, uh -huh. <laughs> uh, a persuasive cross-country regression is a useful way of understanding the relationship between democracy and growth. And then we looked at monopsony, which is firms being able to set wages, and there are loads of different ways that new scholars, any scholar might look at that question and that's a really interesting range of inquiry. Um, for people, your recommendation was to read widely and to do persuasive, not rigorous, search. Yep. Suresh, thank you so much. Thank you.